It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, it's morning. It's a Saturday morning. I am full of life. Are you? So am I. I was just saying how I didn't really get a good night's sleep last night, but I don't know. I, I woke up just in time for the podcast. And the other reason I'm full of life is because we're finishing up what turned out to be a pretty good idea, bringing back former guests to talk about power windows. Yes, great idea. I think it's actually something that we should think about in the future. I think so. Well, you can email us at therushcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you've thought of this idea we came up with, talking with our guests about a particular song, therushcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at therushcast. Lex did the open and close today, Mystic Rhythms. He's amazing. And Jer, hope you have an email to get us started on this episode. You know, I, I don't actually have an email. Okay. A single solitary email, but I do want to talk about the emails we got about people's top 10 lists. Oh, cool. So we got 12 emails with top 10 lists, right? If people had unique songs, that'd be 120 different unique songs. Mm -hmm. We didn't actually get 120 different songs, but surprisingly, surprisingly, there were 57 unique songs. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. So people's lists were all over the place. I, you know, again, I was always thinking that everyone's favorite song is going to be whatever, Tom Sawyer. The stuff from the 70s mm -hmm. is going to just be everyone's favorite top 10, but that is not the case at all. So the song that was mentioned the most number of times, nine times, so it made nine lists, was Xanadu. Nine out of 12. Nine out of 12. In different positions. It was only number one on someone's list once. Okay. It was all over the map. And then the other songs... Should I go through them? You could go through them. Sure. Just give, give us a few. Yeah. So five times uh, people mentioned Subdivision, Spirit of Radio, Natural Science, Limelight, and 2112. Then we got four of La Via Strangiato, Hemispheres. And then three times people mentioned YYZ, Vital Signs, Tom Sawyer, the Time Stands Still, The Garden, The Camera Eye, The Analog Kid, Red Barchetta, Natural Science, Free Will, Cygnus, X1, Beneath the Wheels. And then two times Something for Nothing, Prime Mover, Losing It, Headlong Flight, the Fountain of Lamneth was mentioned twice. Wow. On people's top 10 lists. You know, I got a bunch of top 10 lists on Twitter. And of course, we didn't talk about this, so I didn't tabulate them. Yeah. But I think what we should do, since you got those 12 together, I've got a whole bunch on Twitter that people sent me. Maybe yeah. we can ask people to send us more top 10 lists. Oh, absolutely. And we can keep compiling these and then come up with a, an ultimate Rush fans top 10 based on however many lists we get. Yeah, well, my experience from just these lists will tell us that we will not get a, a single list of top tens because every song that was listed as the number one song on someone's list was only mentioned once. We were the only people who mentioned it at number one. Right, but, but what I'm saying is you said Xanadu, for instance, in these 12 was the top song. Oh, I So if you ya. did the average of top tens, Xanadu would be number one for those 12 lists. But the gotcha. more lists we get more accurate yes that list will be that's how data works that's how data works jer so i just want to <laughs> list i just want to read you the 12 number one songs okay spirit of radio mm -hmm. subdivisions hemispheres la via strangiato xanadu limelight dreamline whoa closer to the heart losing it the camera eye a farewell to kings and animate that's quite a cross section it is. I think the last time we were talking about, I think when we were talking to Jared, I might have said that someone's top song was Driven, that I was thinking of Dreamline. Oh, okay. All right. Dreamline is also an uh, out-of-left-field choice for someone's top song. Interesting. An out-of-left-field choice for a top rush song would be Emotion Detector, don't you think? Yes. I wonder if anyone's number one song is Emotion Detector. That's a good question. Well, we're about to make that one person happy because the next song we're going to talk about on Power Windows is just that, Emotion Detector. When we lift the covers from our feelings, we expose our insecure spots. Trust is just as real as devotion. Forgive us our sinful thoughts. If we need too much attention, not content to be Oh, 
So, Jared, to help us with a motion detector, we'd like to invite back our guest from episode 76 of Something for Nothing, lead singer of The Spirit of Rush, Vicki Flyer Hudson. Welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Thank you. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Why don't we start by just talking about Power Windows in general? What's your relationship with the Power Windows album? It has always been one of my favorites. And I think the primary reason is just the absolutely beautiful guitar work on this album. There are so many solos that are in my top 10 favorite Alex Lifeson solos. Marathon. I mean, it, practically the whole album, I could say that about. So I think the guitar is, is the primary love I have for the album. But I think also the lyrical variety. I mean, all, all the different topics that are explored in this album. Uh, and also I associate it with just a lot of really positive memories from when I was really kind of discovering the depth of Rush. Just driving the streets of LA, listening to the album, you know, from my teenage years, I have all those memories to associate with it. So it's very special to me. And as a guitarist, is there something you can tell us about Alex's solos in this album that are different from, from his previous work? I think it's how, and he's so good at this in general, but I think on Power Windows in particular, he does an incredible job of mirroring or marrying, maybe is a better word, uh, the lyrical content. And, and I think that's something that I really started to explore as I was writing the notes for today for a motion detector that, you know, where the lyrics go, he tends to really mirror that through the guitar and makes the guitar sing in a way. And I think there's also some particular tones that he's using on this album that are quite different. But I love just the soaring nature of his solos. And he really does that a lot on this album. It's just very uplifting. Well, coincidentally, we like to start with a quote to lead into our discussion of each song. And today's quote is from Alex. We thought a motion detector would be a breeze, but it was the killer. It was very difficult to get the mood right. I'm still not really sold on the song. It never ended up sounding the way I hoped it would. Half of a motion detector was done in one pass. Actually, the song had a whole different solo that took quite a bit of work. We left it and went ahead with some other parts and lived with it for four or five days, and Neil didn't feel quite right about it. He didn't think that it made the proper kind of statement to the song. So we re-examined it and gave it another whirl, and that was tough. It's one thing to rewrite a rhythm guitar part. You've got stuff to lock onto. But it was so hard to divorce what had been in my head as a solo for three months and come up with something that was a totally different feel. But I am satisfied with the results. I have to say, Steve, I am kind of shocked to hear that I've never seen that quote before. And if you hadn't read it, I never, ever would have known that that's how he felt about the song because it flows so beautifully. And that solo, to me, is one of his absolute best. And as we get into the song discussion, I'll share more about why I think that. But I, I'm kind of stunned by that. I don't know about you guys. What do you think, Jar? Yeah, it always amazes me, though, when people are like, dissatisfied with the song that you love that they, they find something wrong with it it's like i don't really like it's like how is it possible you're hearing the same thing that the rest of us are hearing exactly and you know a lot of times you just can't imagine a song sounding any different than it sounds yeah and to think that there was a different like it could have ended up differently is just always astounding i love it when bands put out like different versions of songs and you know earlier versions or demos or something like that and you're like oh man i don't know if i would like this song if it sounded like that yeah you know i'm so glad it sounds the way that it does i wonder what that original solo was i mean i'd, I'd love to hear that i wonder if it's on a demo somewhere on youtube it, it might be and now i'm gonna have to go digging for it <laughs> <laughs> we have your rest of your night is now planned for you yes absolutely that's it <laughs> So my first question for you, Vicky, is why do you think that Emotion Detector was the only song that Rush never played live from this album? Do you think it was because it was too difficult for Getty to play the bass parts and the keyboard parts at the same time? That's a distinct possibility uh, because I know that we are, uh, Spirit of Rush is going to be attempting the song uh, for Ryan at Rush Fans Instagram. <laughs> and <laughs> Uh, we're going to have a guest keyboardist because there's just so many layers of keyboards and, and bass and all of that going on. So that's that's a possibility. But now that I hear the quote, I'm wondering if just they they simply didn't resonate with the song as mm -hmm. much as we do. And so it just never 
they never felt super motivated to put it on their set list. So I'm, I'm starting to rethink the reason. I mean, I don't know because I love, I, I love the song and would have loved to hear it live, but uh, I wonder now. So why don't we go through the lyrics and the music at the same time and see if we can, we can figure this out together. All right. Sounds good. When we lift the covers from our feelings, we expose our insecure spots. Trust is just as rare as devotion. Forgive us our cynical thoughts. Thoughts on that first stanza? Yeah, for me, that really sets the stage. And it almost right away shows the vulnerability that Neil is so amazing at conveying. I think what strikes me about the the first stanza is that a lot of people considered Neil to be, you know, reclusive or not open to the fans. But in reality, he was in some ways the most open with us because through his lyrics, his books, his blogs, he revealed a tender heart. And I think this song is the perfect example of that, that right through, you know, right, right from the get go, it's, we lift the covers from our feelings and expose our insecure spots. I mean, what, what else can you say? There's that vulnerability. It's kind of setting the stage for that immediately. And it always reminds me the first two lines about children in bed, you know, they always have to be covered by something because they're afraid of whatever the monsters grabbing their ankles or something like that. Mm. So to have the idea that, you know, we all have our feelings covered up by something. And then once we expose our feelings, we also are exposing those parts of us that other things can grab onto and, you know, possibly hurt us with. Yeah. I thought of children a lot too, when I read this and, and how I felt often as a teenager, it kind of hearkened me back to subdivisions in a way of that same feeling of just, being left out or vulnerable. And it's interesting you mentioned being a teenager because the next part I think about being a teenager when I read it, if we need too much attention, not content with being cool, we must throw ourselves wide open and start acting like a fool. I think teenagers are more so than adults or even young children are afraid of not being cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I always thought that this line was, these lines were about not so much as being, um, you know, acting like a fool and not being cool in like the teenage way, but not keeping your cool. Because if you, I'm, I, I always think this song is about being in love with someone as opposed to just having, you know, showing your emotions for, for just about everybody. And, you know, there is a certain vulnerability to being in love with somebody and acting the fool, you know, the fool in love or whatever. That's what I always think about when I hear these lyrics. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of the song is that it conveys a vulnerability that hits on probably several different kinds of relationships. And there's maybe even a common root to all of them. But when he says, you know, if we need too much approval, then the cuts can seem too cruel. That definitely strikes me as both maybe a child needing that approval from a parent, but also someone in love needing the approval from that person and that if they don't get it, it's, it feels very cruel. So there's almost a common root there. And, uh, that's, that's the, the genius of Neil is that he really seemed to understand the human condition on so many levels. Yeah. If I remember, I'm not going to get it exactly right from the Tao Te Ching. There's a line, you know, if you need someone's approval, then you are their prisoner. And that's what that reminds me of. If we if we need too much approval, then the cuts can seem too cruel because we give too we give the power over to someone else to hurt us if we're yeah. constantly seeking their approval. Yeah, and then there's that notion of you know the more you love, the more that person has the power to hurt you. Yeah. So again, it's that vulnerability and how much do we want to risk for that? Right, and what's the reward? Yeah. And how about the bass line in, in the verse? I mean, this is one of Getty's best. So many great bass lines on this album, and this is just another one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and people ignore it because of the keyboards, or at least they don't, they don't talk about it as much. Because mm-hmm. of right. The keyboards. Everyone's always talking about the keyboards, the keyboards, the keyboards, as if Getty's not playing right. the bass <laughs> on this album like a monster, right? Yes. But I think what they did was they made this song sound fantastic and didn't think about, well how are we going to play this live? And then afterwards yeah. they, you may have been right, Vicki, that maybe they just didn't connect with the song, but maybe they just thought, how are we going to do this? Yeah. 
Yeah, possibly. I mean, there is a lot of layering. So like, I mean, even in the intro of the song before the lyrics start, I love how there's that layered intro. It starts with keys and then the drums kind of come in almost like a, um, almost a military beat Mm -hmm. to the drums and then the guitar and Alex holds that long sustained note that I feel kind of gives like a reflective tone that's almost like foreshadowing of the song to come, but adding all those layers in it, it does seem quite complex. Here's a question for both of you. I know you're both air drummers like I am. When I'm listening to this song in the car, right before the chorus, it's impossible for me not to hit those cymbals with Neil. Oh, yeah. Of course. Oh, definitely. I can't do it. I don't care. (laughs) I'm about to get in an accident. I have to hit those cymbals, right? Yes. That could be a defense. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh, well, officer, I was hitting the, the, the cymbals during. <laughs> well, uh, the chorus of a motion detector happened right as that car was your, coming across. Your honor. <laughs> yeah. And actually, when when the song goes into the chorus with those four beats of mm-hmm. the drums, I feel like it's sort of a signal of a shift into the discovery part. So the verses are sort of more reflecting on the vulnerability and then Da, 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 is like the signal to shift into what you discover out of that vulnerability. Right. Things get quiet for a second, too. It's, yeah. It's like this is almost like pay attention. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like the, the line says, here's the heart of the matter. Here's, here's yeah. the part of the song. You know, this is, this is the meat right here. That's right. Yeah. Illus- illusions are painfully shattered right where discovery starts. Oh, I know. It gets uh, me know. every time. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's the illusions. You know, we all have illusions about ourselves and other people and, and basically almost everything, if you ask me. But, yeah. you know, if you're opening yourself up emotionally to somebody, then you have to let go of your illusions of yourself and the illusions of the other person. Because especially in romantic love, you're going to idealize the other person. But once that person starts letting their guard down, you realize that they're not that thing. You know what I mean? That person you, you have set up on this pedestal doesn't exist and now you have to try to understand who they are and then they have to understand who you are and that can be very painful it can be they are painful illusions are painfully shattered yeah it almost harkens me back to um halo effect on clockwork angels kind of has a similar theme of you know putting putting someone up on a pedestal and then realizing that that was your doing Right. That you put that person up there and the fact that they disappointed you is more you're doing than theirs. That's right. Yeah. So I'm really struck by the chorus because, you know, when he says the secret wells of emotion, to me, that sort of alludes to what is hidden and what we mask because we don't want to be ridiculed or rejected. And that's sort of part of that human condition that Neil is so good at capturing. It's that human need to be loved and even liked. And that being vulnerable is a huge risk. And so we often bury that part of ourselves, but then we miss out on the discovery that comes with that vulnerability, the beautiful part, as he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And when Neil says discovery, does, does he mean us discovering our true emotions or someone else discovering our true emotions or both? I think both. Yeah, I think both. I think well, like what Jerry said that, you know, when the masks come off or you, you unbury that part of yourself, you are faced with your whole self, the, the good, bad, and the ugly. And, and that's where the real discovery is. And if you keep that mask and you keep that hidden so that you can appear cool, you won't ever get to the heart of the matter. You won't ever get to the discovery. You'll just stay in that sort of surface state and yeah, that's that's not where the heart of the matter is. It's not where discovery is. Yeah. That's what I think. And not all discoveries are good. <laughs> True. <laughs> you might learn things about yourself that maybe you shouldn't have learned, I think. Yeah. In some instances. You know what I think, Jar? I think we picked the perfect person to dissect this song, for sure. <laughs> oh, of course. I know. So let's get into the next verse. It's true that love can change us, but never quite enough. Sometimes we're too tender. Sometimes we're too tough. I love that line. Yeah, it's it's like he's exploring in this verse how difficult it is to be in relationship with love. I mean, because love makes you feel empowered, but it also makes you feel very fragile. Because again, the more you love, the more love has the power to hurt you. Right. And kind of leading into the line of so often fragile power turns to scorn and ridicule that, you know, that, uh, but it, it's kind of the risk and reward. If you 
take the risk to really, truly love someone at that deep, authentic level, then that also comes with a reward. Right. But if you're, uh, you know, the type of person who wants to injure someone, having a, a person who has revealed themselves to you, you do have that power. Now you know where to, you know, what sores to, you can open back up or what buttons you can push. Yeah. And that's why it's a, it's a very difficult power to, to wield over somebody. That's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. And also the, the next line in there about sometimes our big splashes are just ripples in the pool. <laughs> that one really hit me hard because on the last time I was with you guys as a guest, I was talking about my book, The Winter Garden. And I remember right before it got released, I think like two nights before maybe, I was really feeling anxious because I'd poured my entire soul into it. And I said to my husband right before its release, what if no one cares? Hmm. Right. And it was that sense of, you know, this is a big splash to me, but mm -hmm. what if it's just this tiny ripple? And no, I, I put my entire heart out for the whole public to see and no one cares about it. Right. And that was like my biggest fear, which didn't get realized, but it was very, <laughs> you know, it was very challenging to, uh, to let it go after it had been mine and had been protected all that time and to just release it out there into the world. And I think that's when we have those parts of our soul that mean so much to us, but we can't guarantee that they'll mean something to anyone else. That's right. And then we get the, the last line, feelings run high. Your thoughts on that, Jer? I just think it has, it just means that, you know, all of your emotions, once they come to the surface, you know, once the, once the well, once you open up that well, sometimes you just, they just run away with themselves and you run away with them as well. You know, your feelings just run high and then it's just like off to the races. And once you start, you know, grappling with these emotions, I think they have a certain energy of their own and you can learn a lot about yourself and then you can dig even deeper and have, you know, even more emotional availability for someone else. Yeah. I love the way you phrase that, that feelings run away with themselves and it kind of What's coming up for me when I hear you say that is just around almost like the pandemic that, you know, while while we were all coping with all the, the challenges of it, the emotions don't always have time to come to the surface because you kind of have to just get through, right. you know, if you're facing any really challenging situation. But once things start to, to shift and you hear this, you know, about a lot of situations where people have like post-traumatic stress is that it's after the thing happens that the emotions start to well up and then they just run away because, and that's why people get post-traumatic stress disorders because, you know, the emotion just starts to run away with itself because you've kind of kept it in check all that time right. in order to either survive or to be cool or whatever you you know, whatever the purpose is. And then it just sort of, yeah, runs away with itself. And there's no direction for it to go. Right. It's just kind of spilling over now instead of watering a field or whatever you do with a, a water well. Yeah. It's just spilling over everywhere and isn't of use to no one. Exactly. We can't talk about this song without talking about another insane solo section. Getty, Alex, and Neil all going crazy <sighs> at once. Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, when Alex sears into that opening note of his solo, I honest to God, I'm just shattered by it every time. It's like a cry of vulnerability and a heart breaking all at once. <laughs> and the whole solo continues like that. It, it's just soaring through the emotions and kind of ripping the chest open to reveal the heart of the matter. And even that diving note with the whammy bar is kind of like the ups and downs of emotion. And then the baseline running underneath that is just pumping out mm -hmm. all the power. And it's just, it, it's amazing. And now we want to know what the original solo was, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to find that. Someone yes. knows where to find that. I'm sure they'll let us I know. I think there is a YouTube audio of the Power Windows demo. There is. You're right. Yes. I, I, I might have it, in fact, bookmarked. So I'll send it to you guys if I can dig it up. But maybe the, the solo is the original solo is on there. Yeah, maybe. Alex just has this crazy ability to make the solo fit the lyrics of the song so perfectly every time. Yeah, every time. I don't know how he does it. I don't know. He's brilliant. I don't know how any of them do it. 
I think it, it when you watch him play on stage, you can really see how that happens because he plays with such feel. You know, uh, often he shuts his eyes during his solos and you can really almost feel him going within and tapping into what is the heart of the matter of whatever song he's playing. So I think because he approaches solos from that emotional standpoint and plays them live that way, he just has this ability to, yeah, to, to mirror the lyrics and the emotion of the song, like no other guitarist I know of. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, after the solo section, back into the chorus with those. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. Now you're really smacking the, the steering oh, yeah. wheel, right? Yeah. <laughs> Every chorus, I hit them harder. And so does Neil. <laughs> so anything else, Vicky, on Emotion Detector before we wrap things up? Any other thoughts you wanted to share? I just love how um, as Getty finishes out the song with the, you know, the sort of feelings run high again, you can hear Alex hold more of those sustained notes underneath that. So it's kind of carrying that emotion all the way through to the end of the song. I just love that. So I hope when the spirit of rush returns, maybe we'll get some emotion detector in the set. What do you think? That's our plan. We, we usually don't, uh, we usually like to surprise folks with our set list, but uh, we know that Ryan from uh, at Rush Fans Instagram has been waiting patiently for us to do that. So I'm here to <laughs> let him know that that's, that's going to happen. We're hoping for uh, our next live stream, but if we can't get it down by then, it will definitely be at our first live performance in 18 months on August 6th. Nice, nice. And where is that? It's at a place called Tannery Row. Um, in a, a little town nearby Atlanta. Nice. And don't forget the book is called The Winter Garden. Vicki Flyer Hudson, thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. Thanks for having me back. And Jerry, we've done it. We've made it to the final track of Power Windows, Mystic Rhythms. So many things I think about when I look far away. Things I know, things I wonder. So, Jared, to help us talk about Mystic Rhythms, we'd like to welcome back our guest from episode 50 of our podcast. He's the author of Taking Center Stage, A Lifetime of Live Performance with Neil Peart, author of the new book, The Working Drummer's Chart Book, and also editor of the new book, Gadaments, with Steve Gadd. Joe Bergamini, welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be back. Glad to have you back. Before we get started on Mystic Rhythms, why don't you tell us about your relationship with Power Windows, the album. What are your thoughts on Power Windows as a whole? So uh, by the time Power Windows came out, I, uh, I became a Rush fan from the song Subdivisions. And I, that's the song that made me want to play drums. I probably told the story when I was on the first time. And uh, so by the time when Grace Under Pressure came out, I was you know waiting with bated breath for the album. And then by the time Power Windows came out, I was uh, dyed in the wool, Rush addict, drinking in everything I could find out about Neil. And um, by the time uh, I did see them on the tour, I saw them at the Meadowlands Arena with uh, Marillion opening, actually, which turned me into a Marillion fan as well. Mm -hmm. That was really, really awesome. Marillion played uh, the whole Misplaced Childhood album on that, on that uh, show, which, which I thought was great. Um, yeah, so then when Power Windows came out, I mean, I was, uh, frankly, blown away by it. And as a young drummer, I just couldn't, you know, Neil was on the cutting edge of uh, electronic drums at that time and sampling, and I just had no idea what he was doing. Um, I really didn't know 
you know, I thought he was just the greatest drummer in the world before that. And then once he started with all the technology, uh, it just kind of put it beyond my reach. So I, uh, but I still loved it. Uh, I was never one of those, you know, I know some Rush fans, especially at that time, they're like, oh man, I like the old stuff. You know, there's all these keyboards. And, and I always just thought that was a, a load of nonsense. I, I just thought it was brilliant what they were doing. And uh, so, yeah, so in my case, I, I tried, I learned all the songs just like I always did. I just kind of faked um, what he was doing on the electronics, but totally uh, admired it. And um, yeah, I, I still think the album's a masterpiece. I, I also, I think it's a masterpiece of engineering as well. I think Peter Collins produced it, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and Jim Barton was the engineer, I think. Jimbo. And uh, everything, when you put on headphones and you listen to it, like I was just doing with Mystic Rhythms, you just hear the air. You, you know, you hear everything in its place. And uh, it's just brilliantly mixed. And uh, I think it's a masterpiece, actually. I, I definitely, I count it among the, uh, the must-haves. Um, there's so many Rush albums that are must-haves, but it, it's definitely in my must-have. I think it's really an iconic record. Um, I was totally stoked when they did the, uh, it, was, it wasn't on uh, R40, but the tour before that, I guess, when they brought back yes. all the tunes from Grace Under Pressure. And yeah. Um, and so, you know, of course, getting to write the book with Neil and getting to know him, I can, I can remember sitting backstage with them at one point and being like, you know, I'm, wow, I'm so excited to hear you guys play between the wheels tonight which is on grace under pressure of course but not i'm like that's one of my favorite songs uh of your guys and he's like yeah me too and i was like these are the kind of moments where i have to pinch myself yeah me too. <laughs> <laughs> talking to freaking neo and he's saying me too. Yeah. Uh, he's like i agree with you that is a good song. yeah yeah <laughs> and uh so anyway he um and of course you know whenever i listen to this stuff now and i i just you know i remember you know I, his having gotten to know him of course his personality just is preserved there forever and it's uh you know it's nice to hear well beyond nice it's quite moving to hear his playing and of course i miss him and stuff you guys on the podcast can't see but i even wore my shirt that he gave me in honor of him i have this uh oh wow nice made these shirts with the, him riding his motorcycle and it was his secret uh you guys can see Re read what it says on the back of this shirt can you see it Caution road ends. <laughs> that was, that was his in joke to tell everybody on the tour that knew him that, yeah, this is truly it. That was before it came out. Oh, yeah. wow. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. He had these made at the start of the tour and it was like, he knew, he knew this was, that was it, but he didn't, you know, they didn't let it out, you know, something. Right. Like so you got one of the secret shirts. That's awesome. I did, man. I'm trying to preserve this thing. Cause yeah, I was going to say, you can't wear that very often. Can you don't wash it? Don't wash it. I'm going to, I'm going to send you guys a screenshot. You're going to have to post it. Oh, please. Oh, I would love to Yeah, line dry that thing, man. Line dry. Yeah. You know, probably the coolest other, um, piece of Neil, uh, you know, I have some memorabilia that he, when we did the DVD for Hudson, he signed to me a drum head that he broke on the test for echo tour and a pair of his sticks. <laughs> And, yeah. and we have some photos together. So that, that's my, that hangs in my drum teaching waiting area. It's like my, you know, special hard rock cafe style right. memory of me being with him. But the other super cool thing is that banner that Tama drums made of him playing the signals kit on the water. Yeah. 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 So I acquired one of those. Um, and my son, who's also a rush addict like me has, well, he inherited it, but without my consent. It's now hanging. <laughs> it's now hanging up in his room. <laughs> that sounds like theft. <laughs> oh yeah, man. He's he's so into it. You know, he's so into it. It's it's. I passed on my rush. You know, to sit with your son at the dinner table and having him quote Neil. You're like, ah, I did well. I did well. You know. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Joe, can you talk a little bit about how Neil utilized the electronic drums and Mystic Rhythms? What was he doing there? So he. Uh, in Mystic Rhythms, uh, the, whole, the whole record, he definitely um, spent more time thinking about the sounds that he was producing beyond the acoustic sounds of the drum set. Uh, and like I said, he was on the cutting edge of not just the electronic drums. So the electronic drums, when they came to the fore on Grace Under Pressure, if you listen to like Red Sector A, where he plays like those tom fills and you hear that like juju, juju kind of sound, mm -hmm. that's a stock like Simmons drum sound. And... You know, so like when, for instance, when he plays that fill at the end of the solo, I think it goes like this. He 
plays that drum fill and it's like all the sounds are uh you guys know the one i'm talking about oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah uh all the sounds are that that clear simmon sound in between the, during that tour and the power windows record which i think they recorded in 85 and they toured 86 the technology for electronic drums started to advance and neil was on the cutting edge of sampling so now he wasn't just attached to the sounds that were on board in the simmons drums but he was triggering sounds that were from other sources and you would just use whatever surface was there to trigger whatever sound you wanted which is commonplace now and most drummers would use just a, a small side unit like a roland spdx which is a small rectangular mounted unit i used in power windows just to generate some electronic sounds um, but at the time neil started to realize hey if i put um, a triggering device somewhere on my kit i can um, trigger any sound i want and at the same time he had been as you guys i'm sure know traveling in africa a lot mm -hmm. and hearing different drums and he started to make samples of those drums and so he acquired samples from the guys who were on his digital team with rush but then he also made samples or acquired samples and so he had the jingling coins that i mentioned earlier a couple of things he did with his voice and then all these electric drums so in mystic rhythms you have a combination of some onboard acoustic sounds um, and some samples so for instance i'll play the groove that he starts with and i'm gonna i'm gonna hit um, i'm gonna hit this instrument which is just a cymbal stacks but that's going to represent a reverbed hand clap which which made that like sound right so that was like a, a synthesized electronic sound that he used a lot and so so that's that's that sound and the china cymbal that was the, on the right side that he used to play the end of subdivisions with his right hand and then he mounted another one on the left so he could play these stereo china symbols so the so the groove is like this and then and then he would he would like put in these other little fills in between so so i don't remember exactly where or how they went but it was kind of like this check this out So you know, like those little in-between ones that he would do? Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Though, although I played them on a tom-tom, all of those were sampled djembe sounds and stuff. So you, when you heard the song, you're, you're actually, you're really only hearing, you're hearing the acoustic chinas, acoustic bass drum, I think, yeah, because he had an 18, and some toms, and then all those other sounds were generated from samples, and he tried to use all of his African drums. And the other thing that he did in this song was, he, he was always a master of um, arrangement and composition. And when he made up this drum part, he decided he would layer in new things to lift parts of the song. So he played that thing I just did through the verse. And then in the chorus, he wanted to have a backbeat. So mystic rhythms, he took away the, he took away the bass drum, but he introduced, he had a deep djembe note, which I'll play on the floor, Tom, and, and kept the hand clap. So in the beginning of the chorus, he's playing this, right? Except he would have the snares off. I left it on from before. Um, that part, very few people would have made that up. I mean, he, he just, he, the fact that he, you can't see what I'm doing, but it's like octopus-like. You have to remember the sequence of what to hit, like he's got the triggered djembe and then the hand clap. I don't know where the hand clap was on his kit. And then he kept the chinas in for the whole song. So no matter what else he was doing, he had to keep orchestrating those china hits in there and then introduce the backbeat and the backbeat. And then he, he had the backbeat in for like the lift part of the chorus and then, and then it went away again. And I always thought it was cool that he actually did choose to record the whole song with the snares off. So in, in the middle, you know, in the, in the um, guitar solo section, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's great. It's like. That gives the song more of a driving, like uh, primitive beat, which has a lot to do with the, with the meaning of the song itself. Yeah, I think, I think he probably left the, song, the snares off because it sounded like a snare drum sounds like a, you know, like a modern 
drum right. in 18, uh, start, starting from the Civil War era to now, really. Right, like a Western kind of instrument. Yeah, and so he, leaving the snares off, you, you, you lose that. So, But um, anyway, that's kind of the, the architecture of the drum part. And um, it was really, you know, I was, in a, I was in a Rush tribute band called Power Windows, and we played that song for a while, but we eventually dropped it because it was so hard to replicate all those sounds. And, and I also found it very difficult to play, just to remember... It was so orchestrated, you know, like if you if you spaced for one second and you hit the hand clap where you're supposed to hit the gem, it's like, ah, man, I mean, the whole thing's messed up now. Right. So I have one question. Uh, what are you doing for the rest of the day? Because you think you just play that on behind me all day long on a loop? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. It's de it's definitely one of those um, iconic. Uh, I did a drum clinic once where I did, you know, all all drum intros, you know, and um you have to be, you know, of course, that, that, would be the, that would be the one for the real Rush fans. You know, I mean, if, right. if, you, were, if you were being lame, you'd do this one. <laughs> <laughs> that's, me at the, that's, that's me at Sam Ash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you were being a little less lame, you'd do this one. <laughs> right. And if you're being super cool, you'd do this one. <laughs> Somewhere in the in the middle of all that, probably on the mid cool would be right. That's cool for me too. Yeah, yeah. man. It's just all. I hope your calendar is clear all day because I'm telling you, it's awesome. We could play. We could play. Name that tune. Uh, drum name. <laughs> oh, that tune, you know? if we ever do a live show, you should come and play. We'll play. Name that tune. That'd be great. Yeah, I, I have to, you know, there's so many uh, iconic drum intros, you know, Neil has a lot, but there's a lot of other, you know. Not great ones, yeah. Yeah. So when we break down these songs, Joe, we like to break down the lyrics too. So we're hoping you can help us with that as well. Uh, I've got a quote from Neil here. I don't believe in astrology, but I don't discount it out of hand either. It's one of those things the piece talks about. We suspend our disbelief and we are entertained. As long as the president isn't being guided by astrologers, I know, I know, in parentheses, then it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, I mean, Ronald Reagan famously, well, Nancy Reagan famously was, was big into astrology, and she would plan out some of his days based on what her personal astrologer said would be good for the president to do. So that is a scary prospect. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's well... <laughs> that's a different podcast. <laughs> I'm your guest, so I can editorialize, and I'm, I think that's nutty, beyond nutty. It is totally nutty. So, you know, I mean, so you want, you want me to comment on that quote? You can comment on the quote, and then what your thoughts are on the lyrics of Mystic Rhythms. Yeah, start from the beginning. Let's go through them, like we usually do. So many things I think about when I look far away, things I know, things I wonder, things I'd like to say. The more we think we know about, the greater the unknown, we suspend our disbelief, and we are not alone. I think from a high level, the first thing I'd say is um, I really think this song just captures Neil's um, zest for life. You know, Don Perry, when he died, wrote a really eloquent eulogy to him in, in which, you know, he talked about Neil's mind and curiosity about the world and a delight and a um, fascination and taken every day by the yeah, you know, by the you know what, and um, right. and living it to its fullest, and and he never lost this like fascination with like learning and discovering things, and to me, this the lyrics of Mystic Rhythms, is that you know, I guess it gets into a little bit of his his thought process, but you know, the more we think we know about, the greater the unknown. He's he he's I feel like it's his wonder about the world we're in, and the title Mystic Rhythms, and uh, you know, we suspend our disbelief, and we're not alone. You know, Neil really didn't believe in the supernatural, nor to my knowledge, at least, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but we were friends and, you know, that we were, it's pretty well known that he was an atheist, but, you know, I don't know what's, what's an agnostic is like, you know, someone who, who, uh, doesn't know. Yeah. You don't know. Right. Like there's a quote from, from George Carlin, my hero, George Carlin, where he no. said, um, he's like, you're talking about how there's no God. And he goes, as a matter of fact, you know, I'm so sure there's no God that if there's a God, may he strike this audience dead right now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I think what that quote you read from me from Neil before is like, 
even even the person who might not believe in the typical religion can still experience this wonder of the unknown of there's like so much greater than than us like that's just the wonder of not know i like the conceit of thinking you know all of it like you know the mind of god and you know like i think right. he he felt like a disdain for people who are like that which frankly i share but uh <laughs> but, you know he and, and so i think in in this song he is like like if if you were out say riding your motorcycle in new mexico through a national park which he did a lot of and you know i'm sure you guys have experienced and i've experienced you know you feel this connection to things greater than yourself and i think i think that's what this song embodies yeah yeah definitely um you know the more we think we know about the greater the unknown answers always lead to more questions and some of those questions will probably never be answered we just cannot answer them at least with the technology and and whatever we have available to us right now but that doesn't mean you get to fill in the answers with whatever you think the answer should be you know the, the um there's a quote I, I forget the exact line it was from albert einstein where he said human intelligence is just enough to understand that human intelligence is utterly inadequate to comprehend what exists right which I thought was, a, is, I'm not saying it as eloquently as he put it. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, Neil, I had a quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Where he says, God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance that gets smaller and smaller and smaller as time moves on. Well, yeah, that, that might be beyond my uh, purvey of what I want to comment on in this. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when it, when it comes to this song, this song to me, you know, the mystic rhythms, it's, and we get a little bit later on where he says, you know, the, in the, the first chorus, mysteries of night escape the light of day. You know, when you're in a certain situation, it can feel very mystical. You know what I mean? You're in the canyons in the middle of the night and you see all of the stars and you see the band of the Milky Way and you could just like, you feel like you're connected to something, like you said, greater than yourself, which you kind of are, but that doesn't mean that that greater thing has any connection to you. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Those are just stars up in the sky. And then when the sun comes out, the, those kind of feelings just kind of disappear. You can't see them anymore. So all of a sudden you're just like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm not. You know, I don't have that kind of feeling anymore. You know, nobody's afraid of ghosts during the day. You know what I mean? Ghost hunters aren't going to the lighthouse in the middle of Nova Scotia somewhere hunting for uh, ghosts at lunchtime. You know what I mean? They're right. going to two o'clock in the morning because it's creepy and that's when your mind starts working on itself. Yeah, well, that's, and people like that. It's kind of cool to think that, like, you know, when you're in New Orleans and you're on a ghost tour, that there right. really are, you know, it's, it's, it's cool to, to believe it, you know, it, it gives you a feeling of being connected to some, something bigger that gives meaning, you know, I mean, right. and, I, but I think, you know, when he says in the chorus, you know, when he says mystic rhythms, I don't, I don't think he means like hearing drums in the African savannah, which it's, it's a, it's like a double meaning. Like he always mm -hmm. used, he always had these double meanings. Like if you go to like, what, where's that? Like Sedona or like Chaco in New Mexico. It's like, I think he also means the energy you feel. Yeah. It's a double meaning mystic rhythms, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's why he's referring to all these different, you know, under Northern lights or the African sun. Right. Now there's under city lights later on. Yeah. It doesn't matter where it is. Right. It's, it's all, it's all just, I think he just expresses his like wonder and just excitement at being part of this uh, amazing for a little while, you know, thing that we get to experience, you know, he, he just, he just has a way of capturing it in a way that people can read into it sort of what, what they want, you know? Yeah. I just, I love the fact that it's, you know, the title has mystic in it and there's a lot of mysticism in the song in, in the sense that, you know, we don't know what's going on, but, he also brings in the concrete, like you know, under city lights. It's once it's under northern lights, which if you didn't know what was causing the northern lights, right. it's probably religion founded on that somewhere, right? Because you're like, what is going on? But then we have the city lights, which is definitely explainable, <laughs> definitely created, yeah, and definitely grounds the idea of mysticism within the song. I think he, I think he also has that like fascination. You know, he was one of those guys, like you know, if you look at the song, the camera eye, you know. The, the, when you're when you're even still to this day i've you know been working in new york city since i was you know in my teens playing rock clubs it, there's still you know an excitement you're like oh wow, I'm, I'm i'm in new york city to play a gig tonight like it's right. it's exciting it's new york city it's like a, it's a special place that's like it has a human energy that's a different energy but 
also connects you to something like bigger. And, and I think he felt that there too. You know, I don't know if you guys seen, have you guys seen Rick Burns in New York? No. Rick Burns is Ken Burns brother. And he did a, like a six or seven part documentary um, on New York. And it's, it's probably my favorite movie of all time. It's so good. Wow. And, um, you know, Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass wrote verses to future New Yorkers and where he said, you know, as you stand on the corner and are swept by the crowd, I was swept. As you look at the river and are entranced, I was entranced. Again, I'm not saying the proper right. eloquent, but you know, and it's like, that's, I think what Neil was getting at in the camera eye. And then he, he hints back to it when he says under city lights, it's just like that. It's like a part of a bigger flow that, you know, that he sensed himself part of and expressed it in this song. And I think it fits in with the theme of the album too, which is power. And here we've got the power and rhythms of nature, the heartbeat of the city, all, all that powerful stuff that ties right in with the theme of the album. Don't you think? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I totally get that. Who'd you guys get to talk about Manhattan Project? We are talking to John Petuto about Manhattan Project. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's a You know, Neil says that was one, a really hard one to write because of all the research that he had to I know. do. I read about the research he did and I'm like, man, I, I wrote entire papers about Shakespeare in college and I didn't read as much as he did for one song. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, you know, I never actually talked to him about this, but it would have been interesting because the Manhattan Project was so far reaching. Like there's that town in North Carolina, that secret town that they built. It's still there. It's like Oak Ridge or something. Really? Yeah, there's still like restricted airspace over it. Like every oh so so many things remind me of Neil and his work. Like <laughs> my, my buddy's a pilot, and we were going to fly to Cumberland Gap National Historic Site, and um and the airspace over that Oak Ridge town's restricted. So I was like, oh mm. man, what, John? What's there that's restricted? And I'm like, I don't know. And then we looked. It's like, oh, it's it was this town that was like they enriched uranium there during the Manhattan Project. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. So. Like I'm still learning and you know, the Manhattan project historic site is like all over the country. It's like everybody knows about New Mexico where they blew the bomb up, but there's yeah. Washington state is part of the site. There's stuff up there. So yeah, I can't go too far into any kind of history or, you know, national park or anything without being reminded of Neil. Cause he was, first of all, he, he was the one who turned me on to visiting those places really, you know? Yeah. So Joe, why don't you tell us about the two new books you have out? Uh, yeah. So, so super quick. Um, I, uh, I just wrote a book. It's called The Working Drummer's Chart Book. It's been released by Hudson Music. Um, it's available on my site, joebergamini.com, and also hudsonmusic.com, and then it will be on Amazon. It's a pretty simple idea. It's just um, I get called to play a lot of shows where like, I have to learn 20 or 30 songs, and I only have a week or so to do it. And if I relied on my memory, I would be in deep trouble. I probably would just say no to taking a gig because I'd screw up. So I just devised a way to make shorthand charts for myself um, in all styles to get through all different kinds of performances. They're one-page charts and they utilize, it's, I didn't invent any kind of new system. It utilizes regular music notation and reading, but in a shorthand thing. So it's kind of just like a fun, my approach to making charts, and it has about 26 songs that you get, you, call, you know, you have to play on weddings and corporate gigs. There's no rush in there. It's more like, you know, mm -hmm. there's old R&B and some, some modern pop songs and some classic rock stuff. So, so that's my book, the working, uh, the working drummers chart book. And, uh, yeah, it's out now. What about the Steve Gadd book? So Steve Gadd has a new book called Gadiments that's been, re it's being released by Hudson music on July 1st. It's in pre-order now. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Steve Gadd is probably the most respected, certainly on the list of the top three most respected living drummers. Um, a living legend. He's played on thousands of iconic recordings. Uh, again, for those who don't know, he's the guy on 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover and Late in the I Evening was, by Paul Simon. I was just going to say, talk about iconic drum parts. 50 yeah. Ways to Leave Your Lover is top 10, easy. And if you only know his pop work, do yourself a favor. I hate that saying. <laughs> do yourself a favor and go back. Um, if you only know his pop work, go back and listen to some of his um, recordings with Chick Corea. Um, oh, boy who just passed away, unfortunately. So on the album, The Leprechaun from 1976, there's a track called Night Sprite, which is just one of the most blazing performances uh, ever. And then uh, on Al Jarreau's Spain, but he's also toured with Clapton and James Taylor, where he plays very simple. He, he can play the most complex, busy stuff and the most simple, slow, eloquent stuff. 
and he loves all of it equally. He's a drum god. And by the way, taking it back to Neil, you know, on Burning for Buddy, he played the track Love for Sale. And it made such an impression on Neil. That's the reason why Neil played the end of Love for Sale as the climax of his drum solo on like four oh, wow. Rush tours. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that thing, he, he started, the first time he did it was like Cottontail or something. But then mm -hmm. the last few tours, he switched to Love for Sale. So yeah, if you want to go back and hear what inspired Neil to do that, listen to Gad's performance on Burning for Buddy, which Neil produced. And then go back and listen to Buddy. Because mm -hmm. of course, Neil was inspired by Buddy to do that record. So it's like the drum continuum there, you know? So um, we were lucky enough that uh, Steve decided during the pandemic to write a series of exercises based on the drum rudiments and then um, displace them in time. So it's a fairly advanced book of his, of the rudiments, the advanced rudiments and his creations of rhythms of them, and then displacing them in time, meaning that he would take the same sticking and start at one sixteenth note later, mm. which creates a whole new rhythm that's displaced. And there's about uh, 40 some odd pages of that. And um, it's really highly anticipated. It should be out July 1st. And uh, I had the uh, distinct pleasure of being the editor. So I got to be on Zoom calls with Steve. On some of them, he asked me to play through some of the stuff for him. Oh God. And, uh, oh oh <laughs> Was yeah. Was it nerve wracking? Yeah. What do you think? Of course. Yeah, yeah, of course you're like, oh, I guess I could. Hold on. So I, I did it and I was like, you know, what happens when you're a little nervous and you play the drums is you, you tend to, like I've been practicing with a metronome my whole life, but you know, if I'm a little nervous, I tend to want to be a little ahead of it. Mm. Not, you know, most lay people wouldn't notice it, but, uh, you know, so Steve Gadd, who is like a human clock, like he's like the atomic clock. You know, <laughs> he's like, I think you're a little ahead of the click. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, Steve, I know, I know. No, you're Steve Gadd. You're listening to me. Um, like, why are you asking me to play it? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's like, he's like, yeah, man, I just want to see, you know, like is, if it's, you can understand it, you know, and like if, if guys will understand it, I'm like, okay, I'll, so I'll be the guinea pig. Here I go. You know? Um, but uh, anyway, it's called Gadamints and uh, there's video of him playing all the examples and it's, it was hand engraved. It's, it's really a masterpiece and um, really has his amazing musical spirit in it. So, um, yeah, with, through Hudson Music, I got to say, it's been Rob Wallace is the owner of Hudson Music. And, you know, not just Neil, now Steve Gadd and Steve Smith from Journey and Vital Information. You know, Steve's a good friend, David Garibaldi from Tower Power. I mean, I get text messages from these guys sometimes. Mm. And it's like, man, I just woke, I, I fell asleep and woke, woke up in a drummer's dream here. It's just yeah, unbelievable. Right. You know? It's amazing. So, um, but thank you for asking me about the books, guys. Hey, no problem. Congrats on the books. And thanks so much for joining us today to talk about Mystic Rhythms. It was fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, Jerry, I think, I think we outdid ourselves here. I mean, that finale with Joe Bergamini playing all those songs for us. I mean, oh. can it get better than that? No. Before we started recording, he was just, the, the first thing he said was basically, guys, guys, listen to this. And he like played the beginning and I'm like, oh man, I hope you play that during in my head. I'm like, oh, I hope he plays that. <laughs> That'd uh, be so awesome. He was the perfect person to talk about mystic rhythms and Vicky was the perfect person to talk about emotion detector. I mean, we just found the right people for the right songs for the right album. Great. Yeah. Maybe we should go back and just plop these episodes in as our first second yeah maybe we should and people will say oh wow these guys really good for their first episode yeah. but then they'll be then they'll be like we want to bring back and people will be like bring back from their first episode what are you i don't th i don't think we can do that i don't think so <laughs> speaking of the first few episodes i think we mentioned this possibly on our second episode but we'd like to do a set list after every album yes yes and the set list i've pulled up is probably the same set list i pulled up the first time we talked about it but I had to do it again. Sure. It's the set list from our first show, Jar, March 31st, 1986. Are you ready for this set list? I read it before. I'll read it again. I am so ready. The Spirit of Radio, Limelight, The Big Money, New World Man, Subdivisions, Manhattan Project, Middletown Dreams, Witch Hunt, which I know you were enamored with the first time you heard it. Yeah. Red Sector A, which I, I can't imagine how great that was to see for the first time. Closer to the Heart, Marathon, The Trees, Mystic Rhythms, Distant Early Warning, Territories, YYZ, Neil's Drum Solo, 
Red Lenses, and Tom Sawyer. The encore was 2112 Part 1 and Part 2, Grand Designs, and In the Mood. Mm. Is there any wonder, Steve, that we became fans? It's no wonder. That's, um, those, those first five songs yeah. would turn anybody into a Rush fan. Yeah. I mean, how could it not happen? Jeez. Everybody who was at that show is a rabid Rush fan right now, don't you think? I think so. It's crazy to think. So, Jerry, we've got one more thing before we wrap things up. We need to welcome back a guest from a few weeks ago on our podcast, Jared Schofer. Welcome back to the Rush Fancast, and congratulations on crossing the United States in 89 days. Wow. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> so my first question, which I'm guessing you already know, how many pairs of shoes <laughs> did you go through on your trek across the United States? Uh, Steve, you were way off. <laughs> uh, seven. Wow. That's crazy. Are we talking like old school 1940s movies with a, with a hole in the bottom of these shoes type of thing? No, it never got to that point. I tried to stretch them to about 400 miles per shoe. And then I had in the early going, uh, when I had the stroller, I had these sandals that I would use on low mileage days uh, to sort of use different muscles and just switch things up a bit for my feet. So yeah, about seven pairs is what I use. So I see you're, you're clean shaven. You look good. How do you <laughs> feel after all that walking? Well, my feet still hurt. Um, I just need to give it like probably a month of not doing much, you know, other than like walks with the dog and walks around the neighborhood. And, but mentally I feel you know, ecstatic that it's over and that I did it, um, that I'm home safe and, you know, just, yeah, that I made it, um, reflecting back on it. It's magical. <laughs> now with a little bit of hindsight, was it worth it? I believe it was worth it. Yeah. I mean, we really raised a ton there in the last 10 days or so. And people just really came out of the woodwork and as a way of congratulating me, donating a lot after I finished. So we're up to like $43,000 wow. plus. Yeah. Which is amazing. Like I told you guys, I was hoping for 30,000 and we just started smashing through that. Like before I got to Virginia, we hit 30,000. And so then I was like, wow, well, sky's the limit. Let's see what we can do. It was totally worth it. Uh, I don't know that I, I would probably not do it again, but yeah. It was worth <laughs> so if Rush fans still want to donate, I'm sure they, they certainly can. Is that correct? Oh, for sure. It's, you know, uh, phone lines are still open. So <laughs> you know, it's um, at Jared2112, J-A-R-A-D, or that's the Instagram handle. Well, that's the Venmo. And then that's the Instagram handle and you can still donate. Yeah. And I'm still, I've still gotten some, you know, some of the people who are listening, getting caught up on the podcast. Um, I've gotten some 2112 donations. Um, I mean, it's hard to say, but I think the appearance on your podcast might've been like a thousand dollar bump. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, you don't know because like Steve said, uh, donate 2112 or more is great. And, and after the appearance, a lot donated 2112, but some donated more and it's hard to say. But yeah, it was definitely a bump. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, well, you don't have to thank us. We thank you for uh, doing what you did for cancer research. I mean, it was really, truly inspirational. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm sure some people want to know about some of the stats. So <laughs> yeah, you have any other stats for us? Oh my gosh. Um, total miles around 2,922 number of days of 40 plus miles was 14. That I thought was interesting. Wow. Most miles 47 <laughs> in one day, uh, least was zero, but if we're not counting those zero days, then it was 19. Um, 24 interactions with law enforcement officers. <laughs> <laughs> And what, uh, what, we didn't spend the night in the pokey, did you at all, any time? Uh, no, one gentleman in Arizona did threaten to have me arrested, but he was just not brushing up on his pedestrian law, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there was, did you have like a little handbook, a pedestrian law handbook? Is there, is there, cause you said there's like a group of people, like maybe a loose group of people who walk across the country or, you know, is there some kind of like a little, little handbook for people? No, but a simple Google search of Arizona pedestrian law will show you basically <laughs> the rule 
that applies in just about every state, which is just simply stated that if there's no shoulder or sidewalk, then you are free to walk towards traffic in the left lane as far to the left as you can get, but you don't have to walk on rocks and grass and whatnot. But unfortunately, the laws of physics are not in your favor, and uh, you <laughs> must always use the laws of physics over the actual law. Right. It was just odd. And one day I had six interactions with law enforcement um, in Virginia. Just like one police officer pulled up and then two others pulled up with him. And I was like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> you know, and they're like, oh, we just don't get a lot of people walking down this road. And I'm like, yeah, I can see why. Because it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it had like no shoulder and it was just very treacherous. And, and then they explained that they were just doing like a training that day. So the other two were there for training. But much like 99% of my interactions, once I explained to them what I was doing, they were all for it. They were like wondering how they can help me. And I said, other than having an instant shoulder built here, you know, you guys can't help me. <laughs> and then it just kept happening that day. Uh, and it just was the same thing. We don't often get people walking here. And also, um, yeah, the drivers on that road were not getting out of my way as much as I would have liked. So I, I sometimes took to acting a bit crazy, like maybe walking in the, down the middle of the lane and just acting like I'm kind of, I don't know, just a bit insane so that they would like see me and be like, oh, we better just get over because this guy's kind of <laughs> weird. And I think this prompted some of them to call the police on me. So, right, yeah, but 24 total um, police interactions. Um, shoes, yeah, shoes is a big one. Um, and I guess Tennessee was the biggest state by far. It was like 560 miles. All the others were 415 or lower. You know, I want to apologize I had mentioned that we could possibly meet you at the end. We didn't do it. It <laughs> happened on a weekday. If it was a weekend, Jared, we would have been there. I swear. Right. Steve, you delayed it by like 10 minutes. I looked around. I was like, I can't go in the water until I see Steve. <laughs> Where is he? You know? You weren't looking for he me. He promised. <laughs> and if I know Steve, he always keeps his promises. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that was kind of, you know, True to your character, but uh, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pleasure following you on Instagram and a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks for coming back to update us, Jared. Really, really was inspiring what you did. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was our pleasure. A reminder, you can follow Jared on Twitter and Instagram at J-A-R-A-D 2112. And you can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are the Rushcast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our four-episode-long conversation about Power Windows, therushcast at gmail.com. Lex did Mystic Rhythms for the open and close. He's great. Subscribe. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jer, please give me a great quote to wrap this up. Of course. Right to the heart of the matter. Right to the beautiful part. Illusions are painfully shattered right where discovery starts. In the secret wells of emotion buried deep in our hearts. They're staying buried with me. That's for sure. <laughs> Take it easy. Hi, <laughs> Steve. Steve. <laughs>